chapter 28, verses 11 through 29. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. All right, all right, all right. How are we doing this morning? Man, I, I just uh, show up every week and, and sit. and I feel like, like I would go buy a concert or buy tickets to hear our band perform somewhere. And we get that every week as they lead us to sing and worship Jesus. I'm so blessed this morning. Um, so Paul makes it to Rome. He, he's arrived to his destination. That means a couple things. First of all, it means we are almost done with Acts. We're going to end up with exactly 50 sermons out of this book. Uh, and, and we got one more. We're going to finish up Acts next week. And so uh, that's exciting. It's been a great journey. So if you're just kind of new to us, we normally preach through books of the Bible, uh, just straight through them. And, and, and we've taken a long time to kind of walk through the story that is told in this book. And it's been a great journey. Uh, looking forward to uh, finishing. I'm also looking forward to where the Lord has us next. So just a little preview. We're going to start in two weeks. We're going to start a series on the person and work of Jesus. In other words, we're going to take a deep dive into the question, who is this Jesus? And, and, and our, our, the title of the sermon uh, series is just called Jesus Is. And we're going to look at some of the things that the Bible affirms that Christians throughout history have believed. And we're going to try to show you Jesus in all his fullness, all his glory, all his beauty. Uh, and, and then lead us to both believe in Jesus in two ways. Believe in Jesus by affirming and believing the things that are true about him. There's a lot of false understanding of Jesus. Recent survey uh, of Christians, people who go to church, uh, they were asked a question, do you believe that Jesus is God? And close to 50% of people who went to church were either unsure or said no. That's a problem. And, and we're going to talk about that. 
Uh, but second, it's not just believing intellectually. We want you to know Jesus. And so we're going to do everything we can to help you understand this person who did live 2,000 years ago, but he lives today. And there are other people in the room who have a deep, loving, personal relationship with him. And we're going to kind of do a deep dive into who he is. So, so that's, that's in two weeks. I'm excited about that. We're almost done with Acts. It also means that Paul has arrived at the destination that he had been planning for a long time. In fact, it's probably at least four or five years in the planning. And it's been two years from his initial movement where he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, then I'm going to head to Rome. His plan was to pop into Jerusalem and turn around and go right back to Rome to visit this church. Didn't happen that way. Uh, And he ends up two years, he gets arrested, and for two years he's in chains. But he's arrived. And the question is, if you went to Rome, what's the first thing you would do? What's the first thing you would do? Maybe you'd go to the Colosseum. That's what I think. That's what I do. Go to the Colosseum and see a sporting event, first century Rome. Uh, that, that would be entertaining, or, or maybe uh, you're going to go uh, see um, Nero's uh, palace and, and the gov- seat of the government of the entire world on Palatine Hill, or, or check out the uh, Pantheon and, and the newest example in the first century of Roman architecture uh, around this temple in the temple district, man, these amazing new buildings with these huge columns and all kinds of marble and beautiful stone and these amazingly carved out statues. Maybe you go there. For sure, we're going to eat some pasta, right? All right, I got one amen. Come on, seriously. We're, we're going to get some pasta in Rome. That's, that's a must, right? Uh, I'm going to eat some pasta and have some Spumoni ice cream maybe, right? Uh, uh, in Paul's case, here he has arrived in Rome. Uh, maybe he's going to reach out, and the first thing he would, he would do is call the people of the church, this Christian community. He's never been here yet. He did not start the church in Rome, yet maybe he's going to reach out to this church in Rome and have them come to him and meet and greet people. Uh, he wrote a a letter to this church already. It's called the letter of Romans. The, the, the book of Romans in the Bible is a letter from Paul to the church in Rome uh, that, that he wrote about two and a half years before he arrives. In chapter 16, in, in, uh, the, the uh, letter he wrote to the Romans is just a list of people he already knows that are living there, that are doing faith and life in, in Rome. So he's got friends in the church. Maybe, maybe he, he, he reaches out to his friends and says, hey, let's hang out. Or, or, or maybe um, what he does is tries to, to, to do all he can to get this hearing before Caesar, the emperor. Because this is why he is now here. He is in Rome because he has appealed to Caesar, uh, knowing that under his arrest he was in danger, but he did not want to be handed over to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so he's appealed to Caesar. Maybe, maybe he meets with his lawyer, gets the legal process started. What we find here, I'm going to be honest with you, when you read it, you didn't pick up on it. What we find Paul doing when he arrives in Rome is actually absolutely shocking. It's a terrible, terrible life and legal decision. And it is a beautiful picture of a man who had one goal and one purpose in life. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at Paul. He's arrived in Rome. What happens when he gets here? That's what we just read. We're going to interact with this. Now, to understand this, we kind of got a, just a real quick retrace of where he's come from. This is the guy who spent many years, 10, 10 or 11 years of his life, going all over the world, preaching Christ, planting churches in the, the, what is now the Roman Empire, mainly in modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece. Uh, Everywhere he went, he both um, uh, saw people come to faith in Jesus, proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, saw people come to faith in Jesus from both Jewish heritage and background and those who were secular, who didn't grow up in, in the Jewish religion and were Gentiles, were non-Jews by birth. But in the midst of that, he planted churches that were always made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This was a crazy idea at the time because Jews and Gentiles didn't hang out. They didn't eat together. They didn't didn't, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to spend the weekend if you're a Jewish person with a Gentile friend. Just don't do it. But here in the church of Jesus Christ, where, where the culture was divided, the gospel brought them together. They're a mission outpost in the city. And Paul just kept planting churches. But in almost every city he went to, he ends up getting beat up and harassed and all this sort of stuff. And then he moves to the next city. Uh, and, and what happens in the story is that the primary instigators of Paul's persecution 
all through the story are Jewish people. Now, we cannot read this, like anywhere you read the Bible, the Bible referencing Jews. There's a horrible, horrible history of Christians using that as a means of anti-Semitism. That's not what's happening in the Bible because when John speaks about the Jews, when Paul speaks about the Jews, as we read about, this is a guy who was a Jew and he is doing all he can to take the gospel to his own people, but they're rejecting it and in rejecting it, uh, they turn on him and the biggest instigators of Paul's persecution and struggle are the people who share his language, share his culture, share his heritage, share his religious background. They look like him, they talk like him, they act like him. But boy, when he comes and preaches Jesus to these people, they get really agitated and annoyed because it is causing them to actually wrestle with the failure of their own religious system and must look to a different Messiah than their own self-salvation experiment. In other words, by this time, the Jews believed they were hoping for a Messiah, a king, who would overthrow Rome, make them great, but they were saving themselves by keeping the Jewish system. They were super religious. And everywhere Paul went, from the very first, like right after he gets saved, he finds Jesus, or Christ finds him, actually. He has to be lowered through a city wall in the city of Damascus in a basket because the Jewish people in that city get angry with him and are hunting him down. It, it, it's the theme all the way through. Here's Paul going from city to city. He eventually gets arrested. He goes back to Jerusalem. He gets arrested in Jerusalem by the Romans because he went to the temple and the Jewish people there grabbed him, started beating him up, and they were trying to lynch him. They were trying to off Paul. He gets arrested by the Romans, and for two years he's arrested in Rome, awaiting this trial. He finally appeals to Caesar and hops on a boat. We told the story last week of the shipwreck, of the whole crazy hurricane and shipwreck. So we got our map back up here again, where Paul, last week we talked about Paul leaving the coast over here in Israel, getting on a boat, ending up up here in, in this area up here near um, uh, uh, what is modern-day Turkey, this area called Lycia in Asia, he ends up then in Crete and tells that they should winter in Crete. It's, it's hurricane season there, dangerous season to, to, uh, to sail. But the sailors and the captain of the boat went, no, we, we got this, we can do this. They put out the sail, realize quickly that they want to get to the, the port of Phoenix and winter there, but they get caught up in a hurricane that pushes them all the way to Malta. And uh, for 14 days, they're adrift at sea with no hope. They shipwreck on Malta, and when they end up on Malta shipwreck, the boat is disintegrated, but God saves not only Paul, but all of the lives of everybody on the boat, which is made up of sailors, soldiers, and criminals. But everybody gets saved. Paul then has an opportunity to preach on Malta, and God heightens that opportunity when he gets bit by a poisonous snake and doesn't die. And then everybody's like, oh, he's a God. And he's like, no, but I will tell you about the true God. And, and so now, three months later, on Malta, they, they take off. So now we are we're probably in, like, now, March, early March. They hop on another grain boat that came from Alexandria, is what the text told us. And now they're going to take off from Malta and go up through Sicily. They're going to port in Sicily for a day. Then they're going to get a, a second day. They're going to port uh, here at the southern tip of Italy. And then they're going to push through this narrow strait here. They get a favorable wind, wind, the text tells us. They get a favorable south wind. They push through these really dangerous waters. And then the boat, real quick with that south wind, makes it up here to this port that is on the coast where the major, the major ports end up. And so they end up um, on this port on, uh, uh, there that is part of Italy, part of that area called Rome. And, and, and Luke eventually says, the author says, and thus Paul arrives in Rome, but then later he arrives in Rome again. How's he arrive, arrive in Rome twice? Well, Rome is both a region around Rome and it's the capital city. So he arrives in the region and then hops on a, on a, on a, a, a road that the Romans had built. And as he hops on a road, he ends up spending seven days with, with followers of Jesus in that first city where they visited. He get, the church comes around him, they love him, he encourages him, all this sort of stuff. But then they follow this, this road that takes them to the city of Rome. And they arrive in Rome, and when they arrive in Rome, this is where, where this moment that, like I said, I'm grabbing, a, grabbing Italian food and going to the Colosseum. What did Paul do? And so I want you to notice, if you have your Bible open, I want you to notice again this this 
verse here in verse uh, 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had entered, he said to him, Then brothers, I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, again, what's going on here? Paul's been planning to come to Rome for a long time. His plan was to stop in Jerusalem, give a donation to the church, and hop back on the boat. In fact, we see this in Acts 19.21 where Paul is uh, being referred to uh, in this book that we've been studying. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. These, this is the, these are the areas of Greece. And go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, while Paul is in that part of the journey, he writes the letter that is the New Testament book of Romans. Listen to what Paul says in Romans during this time in his life. It's about probably about two and a half years before the moment we're talking about here. And Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith has proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now uh, at last succeed in coming to you. Church in Rome, I'm, I'm going to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may mutually be mutually, mutually encouraged by others, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want to be uh, unaware, brothers, that I have... Uh, often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Paul's just writing the church. He says, listen, it is now my plan to come see you. I got to do this first, but I'm going to come see you. He's been planning this for years. The event took over two years under arrest to happen and a crazy shipwreck story to get him to Rome. But he has arrived. He is there. He is where he's supposed to go. And the fact that the first thing he does when he arrives in town is to call his Jewish brothers and the leaders of the Jews is actually fairly shocking. Now, now we've seen in the text that he preached to the Jews first in every city. But he's come to this town because of his trial. He is being accused of something that has him in a lot of trouble, and the Jews are the primary ones bringing the case against him. When he arrives, the first thing he starts, he starts sharing and saying, listen, I haven't done anything worthy of death, but the last thing that you want to do if you're Paul is to come into Rome and get the local Jewish people agitated and riled up. Like if Keep them at an arm's length. Don't say anything to them. You know, plead the fifth. I'm not going to talk to these guys because I don't want the local Jews as angry as the Jerusalem Jews. Maybe a few Jerusalem Jews show up with their lawyer and, and make a defense, you know, make, uh, join in the prosecution against me. But man, the last thing you want are the Jews here in Rome joining that. And now a whole throng of people who are upset and angry at Paul um, show up at his defense. It's a bad life decision. It's a bad legal decision. So why does Paul do it? And look at the text again. Look at what is said here. It is a beautiful moment where we're reminded again of the one thing about Paul, his one purpose, his one goal. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore I have asked to see you and to speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel, I am wearing these chains. Why does Paul call the Jews to him? Like I said, bad legal decision, bad idea for his life purpose. If his goal is to get released, getting these people agitated against him is not a good decision. So why does he do it? Because he wants them to hear the gospel. He wants them to hear the glorious 
saving message of Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand the beauty of the, the king that he has bowed his knee to and the wonder of the good news of Jesus. He wants them to hear the gospel. And so what happens is they, they listen to him and they say, well, we're kind of curious about your attitudes about the sect, the splinter group off of Judaism, this sect that everywhere, everywhere we've gone and everybody we've heard speaks negatively about. Like, here's the phrase, Nobody like, no Jewish people like the Christians in town. Now that's got some history. So there's more here than just this moment. About eight or nine years before this event, the emperor of Rome at that point in time kicked Jews out of the city of Jerusalem. He expelled them from all the Jewish people. They had to leave Jerusalem. You know what got so sideways that caused Jews to have to leave the city of Jerusalem? They got into fight with the Christian Jews in the town. And their agitation, this agitation, this disagreement became such a thorn for the Roman government that they're just like, we're throwing you out. You got to move. And we saw this earlier in Acts with the story. Uh, we, we saw this moment early in Acts, but it's, uh, Roman history tells us about this. And so this is not new for these people. Some of these people had a, a year or two where they had to leave their home and their livelihood and everything because of this, this tension between this sect and, and their faith. But Paul brings them together, and, and they say, we're going to come back. And what Paul does, Paul does not defend himself. Paul preaches the gospel to them. He tells them the one message that is life-changing. In fact, we see Paul echo this. He, in Romans chapter 1, we already hit uh, everything up through verse 15, where Paul says, barbarian and Greek, Jew, doesn't, I want everybody to hear the gospel. And listen to why he says this. He says, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Paul's saying. And here's what every one of us need this morning. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to make it known, and more than anything, if it costs me my life, so be it. I want people to hear the message of the gospel because it is the gospel that brings redemption and salvation, period. We are here today as people who come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories, all kinds of heritages. We don't necessarily live in a culture where, where people are going to show up and our neighbors are going to show up and, you know, with, with the desire to persecute us like Paul is, has been facing. Yet, we do wrestle with the fact that if we make our faith known, if we share the good news of Jesus, if we interact with this, if we're followers of Jesus, it can get people a little agitated and frustrated in our culture with that. We do live in a culture that's growingly hostile. And we need to see the beauty and the example of Paul who says, I got one message, that's all I got. And my message, I, anywhere I go, I'm going to make that known. And he shows up in Rome, and the first thing he does is he preaches the gospel to people who are far from God. They're religious people. He's also going to have the chance to do this with people who are not religious. But he, he, he comes to this religious crowd, and he wants to say, listen, your path of saving yourself will not work. I want to tell you about Jesus. And what is the gospel? Simply put, the gospel is Jesus. The story of what he did and what he accomplished, of how he uh, came to earth in humanity but was God from eternity and, and poured his life into a group of people, yet uh, his sinless life uh, and preaching and teaching put him sideways with the Jewish religious authorities in the Roman government who conspired to crucify him on a cross, yet three days later he rose again and his his death, burial, and resurrection accomplished something cosmic for you and for me. And that if we will turn from our own self-salvation experiment, from our sin and trust in him, Christ will save us. In other words, let me give you a quick definition of the gospel. The gospel is the glorious good news of God's rescue, which he has accomplished for us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to here today either saying, I can save myself, or running to the God who saves. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the announcement that our God saves and salvation is available for you. And so this morning, I just want to be where Paul is. I'm in a room, and if you come here enough, you know this is the one message we have every week. But I just want to make the gospel 
clear to you from what Paul preaches. I just want to look at every one of us and say, listen, we are standing in a place where we need grace. We need hope. We need joy in our lives. Our lives are broken, but we are broken people. Is there salvation? Is there redemption? And some of us have found that, but we need to be reminded again that I wake up tomorrow morning and I need to realize that my hope and my, my, any sense of hope or goodness in my life is going to come only because I turn from me and trust Christ. Some of us in the room, though, are trusting our religion, our pursuit, our goodness, our own, our own pathway, or we're just living for ourselves, and we need to hear the message of the gospel, maybe for the first time, and have what, what, what shows up in this text, have our heart that is hardened, made soft, and our eyes that are blind see. I want to proclaim the gospel to you. This Just simple, clearly, from the text, from what Paul preaches. This is the gospel. And we're going to quickly talk about two things. We're going to talk about the message of the gospel, and then I want to proclaim to you our response to the gospel. How do you respond to this message? And there are two, way, two responses, and one will lead us to joy and redemption. The other will lead us to to hopelessness. And so here we go. The message of the gospel. Verse 23, he tell, we see uh, that Paul is trying to convince them about Jesus. You hear that? He, he's looking. He, he's like, I just want to get this group of people together. I want to talk to these Jewish people who've been looking for, longing for a Messiah. They've been looking for redemption. They, they, they know from the scriptures the one true and living God, yet they are rejecting Jesus. And my goal is from morning to night, I'm going to get them, and we're going to spit, we're going to have a long sermon. Trust me, I'm not going from morning to night, this one, Okay. But from morning to night, he is pleading with them. He is proclaiming to them. He is pouring his soul out, even in danger of them turning on him and joining the case against them. Paul is pleading with them, trying to convince them about Jesus. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, the same guy is writing. And he says, listen, let me just lay the gospel out. He, he's talking to this church where he had planted the church. He had uh, uh, preached the gospel to the city. He had seen both Jews and Gentiles come to Jesus. And now he's writing back to this church. He says, I just want to remind you of the gospel. You believed it. You still need to believe it every day. And as you believe it, it will keep saving you. It has saved you. It will save you. Here's the gospel. And he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Here's Paul saying the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters every week, this is the only thing we have. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. That's the essence of the gospel, that I deserve God's justice. I deserve God's judgment. I deserve God's wrath. I have snubbed my nose at the, at the creator of the universe who has given me every good and perfect gift. And I've said, I don't care who you are. I'm living for myself. And what I want is I want all of God's blessings with none of God's godness. I want to be God, but I want God to give me everything that he has. And it has left us with a severed, broken relationship with God, out of hope, because we are trying to live for our own mandates, our own hopes, our own joys. And, and uh, I delivered unto you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. I'm here to announce to you that there is good news, and that, that, it, that the good news is that there is a substitute. His name is Jesus. He died in your place. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This isn't something that God made up on a weekend and went, oh, how do I solve this problem? From the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, God had a solution to your problem. And the solution was going to bring glory to God and, and hope and joy to you. That he, and, and, and the whole Old Testament is laying out the beautiful story of God's redemption according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. Jesus was really dead. He really died on a cross 2,000 years ago. They really laid him in a tomb. They really cried and mourned on Saturday. And then they really showed up on Sunday morning to an open grave. That, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. The Bible's trying to help us see this. We are trying to look in the story. This is not some Jesus who is alive in our hearts. This is some mystical idea of, of, of Jesus, you know, being with us, 
you know, we have this, like, you go to a funeral, and it's kind of like, uh, you, you're like, I, I just feel grandma is kind of still with us, and that's a great sentiment. That is not what the gospel's saying. That is not what the scriptures are saying. They're saying this dude was killed by Romans on Friday. He was dead, really dead. To make sure he was dead, a Roman soldier shoved a spear into his heart and turned it to make sure Jesus was dead. They took him off the cross. A Roman executioner pronounced him dead. They wrapped him in cloths, and then two guys grabbed his body and put him in a tomb. But on Sunday, he came out of that grave. He ate fish with his buddies. He, he told them to touch him. It's not some mystical, ghostly experience. Jesus defeated death, hell, and grave forever. He is alive, and the gospel is telling us this, that something cosmic happened for you there. Something that will alter the whole scope and direction of your life happened 2,000 years ago. And here's Paul just pleading, begging these people, hey, look at Jesus. You know the stories. You ha- you're the ones who have the scriptures. You know what, like, let's look at this and just listen to what he says to them. He, he points out basically four basic ideas about the beauty of the gospel to these religious people. They're, they're on their own self, self, salvation journey. They are, are trying to find hope and, and, and purpose through keeping the, the rules of Judaism. And Paul is going to plead with them, look to Jesus. And the first thing he talks about is, he says in verse 20, he says that they're their hope, that, 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 that Jesus is the hope of Israel. The gospel is the hope of Israel. Verse 20 says, for this reason I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. The hope of Israel. Hope is a powerful word. It's a word that shows up all over the place in culture. We just want to have hope. Hope says my reality right now is not as I wanted it to be. My reality right now is not as I imagined. But there has to be a better hope. There has to be a better reality. And hope is used all around our culture. You see it on signs everywhere. You see it in, in, in campaigns. You see it in all kinds of places where the hope, hope is offered. It. L- listen, if we lose hope... There's like no reason to go on. And so he's talking about the hope of Israel. Their hope, the hope of Israel, has been the fact that they had this whole Testament story and promise after promise after promise of a deliverer who will redeem them. Hope always has a couple things. Hope always has an object and an outcome. This morning, you, you are hoping in something, and that hope has an object and an outcome. Now, for most of us Americans, the object of our own hope is our own human resilience. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstrap. We can overcome. We can do it. We have hope. And when we talk about hope in our culture, it's, it's this inner resolve as Americans that we can make this happen. I'll just say that kind of hope doesn't work in Haiti. Their inner resolve is not going to make their lives better. But they find voodoo. There's an object of your hope, something that you were leading into depending on. You're like, listen, this thing. And we place our hope in all kinds of stuff, right? Most of it here is then going to bend into our own human resilience, but we hope in our retirement account. A lot of us are in that age where we're now hoping in our retirement account that I get to walk out of my, my job one day and I can, you know, snub their nose and use other hand gestures that I won't use on stage and go on with my life and my, my retirement account is where my hope is. Uh, uh, we have hope in our, our own purpose and plans. We have hope in um, uh, our fitness Come on, we, we have hope that if I get to the gym and just work out, bitch, I'll be skinny. It ain't working. We, we have hope in our doctors and nurses. We have go, hope in our golf swing and our fishing boats. If I can just get to the point where I can play golf, I can go fishing. We, we have hope 
We place our hope on relationships, either the relationship that I have, so all of a sudden my husband, my wife, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, some guy that I, I have the hots for, some girl who has noticed me is now the, the source of my finding my identity, my, my identity and my hope. But, but the whole human experience is this. None of those things can bear the weight of your hope. There's, there's an object that you place your hope in. And there's an outcome. You have a form of salvation that you've created in your heart, in your soul, a a, a way that if I just had this, if I could just get to this point, if I could just live my life this way, it may be a bigger house, it may be a a, a certain way of of doing life, it may be, like I said, but you have some form of my hope is that I could get to this point and this will make my life better. There's an object and an outcome. And the outcome of your hope is your version of salvation. For Israel, the object was some king that would arise that would overthrow Rome and make Israel the sitting superpower. Therefore, they could thump their chest and say, our God is the true God and we are the great people. They just wanted to, like Rome right now, these people are in the shadow of the Roman government, but their hope that they are leaning on is a version, is a, a, a king who will overthrow Rome so that their form of salvation is that they will be the great nation on planet earth. Then we can rule. And Paul comes and says, listen, let me tell you, Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the hope of Israel. You you won't find true hope until you see it through the lens of the cross. Victory through death is, is the story of the outcome of the hope of Israel. And here's the gospel that there is a hope. There is a hope for this life, the life to come. The object of our hope is Jesus. The outcome of our hope is the redemption of our souls, the the presence of God, the, the saving work of Christ in us. Paul says, listen, I want to talk to you because I know the hope of Israel. His name is Jesus. But he doesn't just talk about the hope of Israel. He also points them to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 23 and verse 24. He says, when they had a Pointed a day for him, they came to him, so that now a huge throng of Jewish people come with the leaders in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. He says, I'm going to tell you about the kingdom. I'm going to preach the kingdom. And the kingdom of God was something that, that for Israelites, they got it. it. It's still this idea of the king who will make, like we knew we were a kingdom, but we're going to have this new time where we become the sitting superpower. But here's, here's Paul saying, there is a kingdom, the kingdom of God is real, but Jesus is the king. The Messiah you're waiting for is this person, Jesus. He showed up in the world to usher in, to bring the kingdom of God. And again, what, what we're talking about here is competing ideas of a kingdom and a king. And, and what the gospel says is that you're a lousy king. We don't think so. I think I'm a great guy. I can rule my life. I can take care of myself. But that has led us to nothing but brokenness, uh, disillusionment. But more important, it has put us where we are at odds with the true king. But there is a true, a better king who has come that Christ brought the kingdom. In fact, the first thing Jesus preaches when he shows up, it says, repent. Turn from yourself and your sinful ways because the king, the kingdom is at hand. In other words, he's saying, hey, the king has shown up. And the whole story shows us the beauty of Christ as the true king, not of just of Israel, but the true king of God's kingdom, and that anywhere Christ rules and reigns, anyone who will turn to Jesus and away from self, you don't get salvation in the gospel until you bow your knee to him as king. I want him as savior, like I want fire insurance, And then I want him to pat me on the back and say, go live your life the way you want to. That's what I want, right? But listen, he's he's a way better king than you are. And and, and Paul is looking at him going, man, till you see that the whole storyline of Scripture is leading to Christ, he is this hope of Israel. He is this king that, that brought Christ's kingdom. But 
The kingdom of Christ is not a national entity. It's not a political group. It's not some nation on planet earth. The kingdom of Christ is going to be his rule and reign through people who see his beauty and trust him as Savior and Lord. They run from themselves and they fall at the feet of Jesus and say, I need you and I'm giving my life to you. You are my Lord. You are my king. The gospel is hope. The gospel is of a kingdom. Third is the gospel is a fulfillment of scriptures. He says he's, he, he preaches this from the law and the prophets. Now, at this point in time in history, when a Jewish person said law and the prophets, he's talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament. He's talking about the whole thing. The New Testament that we have in our Bible was being written at the time that Paul is speaking. It had not been compiled, put together, but he's saying, listen, the whole Old Testament, the whole story of the Old Testament is this. It points to Jesus. Jesus is the whole story. Everything points to him. You have this great story of God's beautiful rescue, uh, his redemption being laid out through the story in the Old Testament. And the, uh, the Bible is God's grand glorious story of the God who saves. In fact, if we just look at Israel's history, what we see is them constantly moving away from him, them constantly failing. When they're going to live life the way they want to, they, they, they set up idols, they, they fall, they fail. And God at the same time disciplines them at the time, but he never gives up. His love never gives up and never runs out and he never abandons them. He continues pursuing. And the Old Testament story is the story of the God who keeps rescuing them because they already had rescued them. It begins with this great story of God's rescue through, uh, the, the, from slavery at the hand of, uh, of Moses. This guy named Moses from the Old Testament who's kind of their leader at the time. But God sends him as he rescues them from slavery with, the, with mighty acts and miracles, including the parting of a sea. God rescues his people. Their whole identity in the Old Testament is that we are the people who've been rescued by God. And we see that God saves his people. But they keep failing, falling, running from him, messing up, and God keeps pursuing pursuing them. And generation after generation, there are new stories of God who loves them, who disciplines them, but he keeps on saving. In fact, every story in the Bible is a story about the God who saves. There's a lot of awful, awful stuff in the Old Testament, horrible stuff. And like I teach Old Testament history and my students get frustrated. They're like, why would God tell this story? And the answer is when you read an awful story that doesn't have a salvation ending to it, it is telling us how bad we will get if God doesn't step in and save us. And they get awful. Yet, over and over again, God raises up people like David who killed a giant on behalf of the nation. God keeps saving his people. And all of these are just little microcosms, little moments to point to the greater reality that the whole Bible story is that our God saves. And here's Paul saying, let's let me explain how the Bible's to be read and understood. The whole Bible's about Jesus. It's not about you, it's not about me. The Bible is for you and for me, and it's not about you. In fact, if, if you go and you start reading the Bible and try to say, all right, how do I apply this? What you're gonna find is a lot of frustration because either you're gonna be like, I'm terrible at this, and then you're gonna like, buck it up and try. I'm gonna really work at this. And you're either gonna fail or get arrogant. You're going to become a religious snob because you're like, I might not do it perfect, but I'm better than everybody else. This becomes the problem of the religious Jews in the New Testament, right? And it's the problem of a lot of churchy people in our culture. Some of you come here this morning and you've been around people who claim Jesus and they, all this sort of stuff, but the whole posture of their heart was that they were arrogant and they were better than you. And it's not because they are failing to believe the gospel somewhere. I am not better. I am broken and it's deeply in need of a savior as anybody in this room. Yet, the beauty of the story is that God saves. And the whole Old Testament is pointing not to me, but to Jesus. The application is that I see in the message of the Bible the way God saves and understand his ultimate redemption is the person of Christ. And he's, Paul's looking at these people going, here it is. Let's start with Genesis. Let's show you where Jesus shows up in Genesis. Let's get to Exodus. Let's show you how Jesus is the Passover lamb. Let's get to Leviticus and show you that Jesus is the sacrifices that's made when we don't keep the law and we just keep going. We see the whole story of the Old Testament and everything has a beeline, has a string, has, has, has a point where it leads us to God's 
ultimate redemption in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel. Third, sal- the, the gospel salvation for the nations. Verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now this, this verse comes after some Jews believe, some don't. Most of them don't, and they're, they're now kind of bowing their neck going, I don't like this Paul either. Yet, Paul is just looking at them going, let's make this clear. God's salvation is not for one tribe, one group of people. It is for anybody. And so you may come in here this morning going, I hear you, Mike, but you don't know how, how much a mess I am. You don't know how much I've, I've screwed up my life. You don't know where I've failed. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my story. You don't bear, the, bear my guilt. Maybe not. But I can guarantee you, you're not worse than Paul. I can guarantee you that. Because before he was saved, he was part of this crew. He was the one killing, murdering, arresting. His hands are bloody as can be. Yet Christ saved him. And forgave his sin. And gave him hope. And so here's Paul saying, listen, Here's who Jesus is. Let me tell you the gospel. He's the hope of Israel. He is the king of all kings. He is the one who the whole scriptures point to, and he is salvation for all people. Now, there's two responses, and we see this in the text, two responses. Uh, We see this in verses 24 through 27. What Paul does is Paul then gives this final appeal after some believe and some don't. He gives this final appeal and a challenge, and then he quotes an Old Testament text from Isaiah 6. So we look at it again, starting with verse 24. He says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disagreed. And the disagreement among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. So Paul been sharing Christ, but as he sees them getting harder and angrier, harder and angrier, some of them, he makes this one statement where he quotes Isaiah 6. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed See, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, and that they may see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, but what Paul says, listen, you're, you're getting hardened. You're getting angry with me. It's proving something that's going on in your heart. And this is my challenge. There's all kinds of things that can make our heart hard. But he, the first response here is unbelief. They don't believe. There's all kinds of ways we can get there. Some people in the Bible, they, they, their unbelief leads them to hostility. They hate Jesus. They hate Christians. They hate anybody that will proclaim. But most of the people in the Bible who end up in unbelief, they love Jesus' ministry. They hang out at his miracles. They they just keep the message at an arm's distance. Man, I, I like the idea of Jesus. I like having some religion. I like the moral fiber it gives our country. I like God and country and mixing Jesus and all this stuff. I like the idea of, of, of you know, uh, some supreme being and Jesus is the one I grew up with, so I feel good about that. But then you're confronted with the gospel and you're like, you don't get mad. You're not hostile. Just like, no. And, and what happens, this guy Isaiah, he's an Old Testament prophet, lived about 800 years, 700 to 800 years before Jesus. And God called him. Isaiah 6 is where this text is from. And he has this glorious moment where he sees the glory of God filling the temple. And God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I'm going to go. I'm going to proclaim Christ. And this text is the immediate follow-up where God says, great, Go. You're going to preach and people are going to get ticked at you. Their hardness of heart is just going to keep showing. And I'm going to judge my people. But as you preach, there is an option. Hardened hearts can get soft. Blind eyes might see. Deaf ears might hear. And he looks and he says, you're going to proclaim this. But here's what's going to happen. People who hear your preaching are going to hear you, but they won't hear you. They're going to see it, but they're not going to see it. They're going to have hardened hearts. They're going to turn away from the message your act of proclaiming is actually going to add to the hardness. That's what's happening with the Jews and some of the Jews in this passage. 
And for some of you, that's your story. You've been in sermons a hundred, a thousand times, and you've heard the message of the gospel, and your response has either been hostility, but more than likely for a lot of us, it's just been like, that's pretty cool. I'm just not buying all the way in because I like the idea of a God, but I really like my own way of saving myself. And here's what the text saying. Every time you do that, your heart gets harder, your eyes go dimmer, your ears get more clogged up. And your distance from God, even though you may not feel it, is getting more real because of your unbelief. But some people believe. Some people trust in Jesus. Some people turn to him. And here's what the text says. I mean, he just quoted text. When they do that, God says, I'll heal you. That's just a way to say God will rescue, save you, redeem you in Christ. My plead to you this morning as I come to the end of my time is hear the gospel and believe. Hear the gospel and believe. The gospel is good news that our God saves through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Believe. It's good news. Our band's gonna come up here. We're gonna lift our voices and sing to Christ and celebrate Jesus. Make much of him. People who are part of this church are going to give uh, because the Lord has already saved them. It's a way to respond to the goodness. But if you're a guest, we don't ask or expect you to give during that time. We would love to have you join in our singing. But if you're here today and you're like these Jewish people where you've heard the message of the gospel, but you have not yet really believed. Like, you, you believe. But if you bowed your knee to Christ as king and turned from yourself and run to Jesus, authentically believing. If you haven't today, let me stand where Paul did 2,000 years ago with his Jewish brothers and plead with you, trust Jesus today. So how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, simply put, Paul will say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's what he's saying. And here's, here's the response. In a prayer, in an attitude of the heart, when a person says, Christ is my Lord, he is my king, and I believe with all that I am that what he did for me 2,000 years is what will save me. I run to the cross and I place my hope, my hope there. See, the object of our hope as Christians is the cross of Jesus. It's the cross of Jesus. I place my hope in the death of a man knowing that he didn't stay dead. And so this morning, you just turn from yourself and, 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 and place your hope in Christ what he did, you, you, you give your life to him as king and embrace his kingdom in your life. Paul says, you'll be saved. We'll have here in a few minutes some people over here. If you're like, I, I don't really know what to do with that, we would love to have a conversation with you. But wherever you're at today, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is just a day, a reminder day, believe the gospel again. Hold on to Jesus. Your hope is there. But if you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ, let this be the day you believe. Let this be the day you believe. And if you do, let us know. Let us have a conversation about what that means. Or come to us and let us walk you through how to get there. All right? Jesus, we praise you, and I just pray for the redemption of your people in this space and place. I thank you for the people you've already saved, like Paul. And I pray that, Lord, like Paul, as a church, we would have a zeal for the gospel that even if it threatens our, our livelihoods and our lives, we would still be people who have one message and we want to make that known every place we go. But, Lord, for people who here who are they're on a religious quest, a religious journey, they maybe feel like they are doing the right things, but they don't really know you, Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they turn from themselves, they repent of their sin, they repent of their self-salvation experiment, and they trust in you. And so draw hearts this morning to your cross and to the hope of the gospel because there is no other hope that can authentically save us. In your name I pray, amen.